Good morning. On behalf of uh, Dr. Hamry, who unfortunately couldn't be with us this morning, I want to welcome all of you to our Positive Trade Agenda, Affirming American Leadership event. This is going to be <clears throat> a little bit unusual for a think tank because we're not going to give you answers. Uh, we have questions. And it's going to be your job, uh, after we are uh, launched by our, our opening speakers, to help us answer the questions. The big one is, how does America lead in a 21st century trading system that is very different from even 20 years ago? Examples, global supply chains, digital trade, major new actors. I think you'll find China figuring prominently in all three of the conversations we're going to have, uh, as well as the remarks of our, of our opening speakers. So we're going to ask you to help us figure out how, what America's goals are in this new system, and what do we have to do to achieve them? And this is going to start a process. Uh, it would be nice if you can all come up with nice, neat answers, uh, but we don't expect that today. Uh, I hope this is going to be the beginning of <clears throat> something that CSIS is going to be spending some time on uh, uh, going forward, trying to answer those questions. Uh, what we're going to do today <clears throat> And I'll give you more instructions later, because we have walls coming down and going up, and you have to move around a little bit. And I'll get into that at a later point. But uh, uh, we're going to have some opening remarks that will try to frame what we're doing. Uh, and I'm going to yield to the two of them in just a moment. And then we're going to have three, three breakout sessions that will run at the same time on uh, three of the key issues that we've identified. Uh, the idea of a trade policy goal of three zeros of uh, zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies. The question of reforming our multilateral institutions, particularly the WTO, and whether they are equipped to deal with the new challenges that the trading system presents. And then finally, <clears throat> as you might imagine, uh, one session on China, whether we should uh, disengage, uh, recognize futility, or uh, engage and try to fashion a, a constructive policy going forward. Your task in each case is going to be to uh, listen to, uh, the, we have some discussion leaders that will help uh, frame each of those issues. Then we envision actually a discussion. We don't want just Q&A. So uh, we need you to go to the group that you chose when you signed up. No switches, please. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be unbalanced. Uh, and then we hope you will help us uh, come up with some answers to those three questions. Uh, and your reward at the end of that is lunch. Uh, and so when we're done, uh, we will send you out to get lunch. We will bring the walls back up, reconvene as a collective group, and uh, your discussion leaders will summarize what you have said. So that's the plan for the day, and I'll give you more logistical details at a later point. Right now, it's a real a pleasure for me to introduce the person who really inspired this event in the first place um, by suggesting that this is something that we should do and, and raising with us the, the three zeros idea in particular. Uh, and that is uh, Fred Smith, who is the chairman and CEO of FedEx Corp. Uh, he founded FedEx in 1971 after his tour of service in Vietnam uh, with the Marine Corps. And since then, he's built FedEx into a $65 billion global transportation, business services, and logistics powerhouse, not to mention a brand name that is known worldwide uh, for fast, efficient, reliable service. 
I think he's the ideal person to begin our conversation today as a vocal and active proponent of the fundamental benefit of open trade to our economy, uh, American dynamism, and the American quality of life. Uh, during his time as a leader of FedEx, he's seen firsthand how trade liberalization has revolutionized uh, his industry and many others and empowered uh, both the customers and the citizens that, uh, that they serve. Uh, before he comes up to make his remarks and, and to introduce uh, our keynote uh, speaker, Secretary Paulson, uh, we're going to show you a, a short video courtesy of, of FedEx. So let's go ahead with that and then we'll hear from Fred directly. It's a new day, a day like any other, a day of possibilities, a day of challenges. Today, a Colombian watch manufacturer needs to reach new markets for their one-of-a-kind timepieces. A medical firm needs their custom-designed cranial implants to arrive in the U.S. in time for urgent surgeries. An internationally renowned exhibit needs to transport the largest collection of King Tut treasures ever on display outside of Egypt. A growing seafood supplier needs to expand beyond their area without compromising quality and freshness. An enterprising fitness equipment company needs to reduce the costly errors that come with classifying their freight shipments by hand. It's a new day. People, small businesses, and enterprises around the globe looking for better ways to connect and make a difference. And the one thing they all have in common is who they choose to help them do it. FedEx. Connecting people with goods, services, ideas, and technologies that create opportunities. Providing customers around the world with a unique portfolio of business, logistics, and shipping solutions serving 220 countries and territories, linking 99% of global GDP, moving 14 million shipments each business day through 5,000 facilities, over 1,000 miles of conveyor belts, using nearly 180,000 vehicles, making it easier for customers to access new markets, new answers, new potential. Because something wonderful happens when you connect people and possibilities. Innovation soars. Jobs are created. Trade thrives. Economies grow. Lives are improved. That was today. And tomorrow, we'll do it all over again.
Now? You hear what I said before? <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> so uh, we decided to show that little video to, to, uh, to make a point. And uh, before I introduce our renowned speaker, I just wanted to reiterate what you saw in the video. FedEx sits at the nexus of global trade. It's a little out of date. We're actually moving almost 15 million shipments a day, serving 220 countries and territories. So we see the value of trade up close and personal every day. Millions of transactions between individuals and companies. As the video notes, our purpose at FedEx is to connect people and possibilities. And we do that by enabling global trade through our various and vast unmatched networks around the world. Let me also take a moment to acknowledge a member of the FedEx Board of Directors who you're gonna hear from later in one of the breakout sessions, Ambassador Susan Schwab, so glad to see you here too, Susan. Based on what we've seen over the past 40 years at FedEx and beyond that from 20th century history, we know that trade offers many benefits something that's rarely said in the political discourse today, but I'd like to reiterate it here. Trade stimulates innovation and then shares that innovation with vast markets and billions of people around the world. Trade benefits small businesses most of all, allowing them to grow and access millions of new customers. At FedEx, we've seen that everyone benefits when it's easier to bring new products and ideas to a global market rather than just a national market. Trade creates jobs. In the United States, currently 41 million plus jobs are directly related to trade. That's more than one in five jobs in the entire economy. As America has become more dependent on trade, Employment related to trade has increased more than three times the rate of non-trade jobs, according to the U.S. Business Roundtable. In addition, contrary to a lot of the political comments these days, global trade imbalances are actually declining. China's trade surplus is just over 1% of its GDP, down from almost 9% in 2007. This will likely continue as China and other developing economies become more consumer and service oriented. The U.S. deficit as a percentage of GDP is now 2.5% down from its recent peak of 5.8% in 2006. Contrary to what some believe, while trade has caused the loss of jobs of some jobs, Technology is responsible for far more. In fact, as we all know, technology is both a job destroyer and a job creator. You can just look at a brief history of the United States to see that. According to Professor of Economics Donald Boudreaux in a New York Times editorial last March, quote, in the early 1900s, Automobiles famously destroyed jobs for buggy whip makers and blacksmiths. Starting in the 1980s, personal computers and email killed millions of jobs for stenographers and document deliverers. Today, ATMs and online 
banking apps are eliminating jobs for many bank workers. He goes on to say that despite these and many other innovations that have destroyed jobs, the number of U.S. jobs today is far higher than ever before in our history, and so are the earnings of many Americans. I doubt any of us in this room would try to stem the tide of technology. If so, put your mobile telephones down, quit ordering online, and ground the drones. Similarly, let's not call for the shrinkage of trade. It has created greater wealth worldwide and lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Trade, as our little video shows, creates opportunities every day. We need to work hard to transition the, those who have lost employment into the many jobs created by trade and new technologies. FedEx provides innovative jobs training programs that widen the pipeline for pilots and aircraft mechanics, for example. We also offer training opportunities for underserved young people who are eager to learn and work. And we also work hard to educate our workers on the benefits of trade. At FedEx, we have a program to educate our team members because all our jobs, more than 450,000 strong, are, in our opinion, trade jobs. We believe the global business community needs to continue to work hard to highlight the investments and job gains created through worldwide trade. While FedEx remains committed to lowering trade barriers for all our customers, we must make sure that lawmakers are aware of the benefits of trade and of the global rules-based trading system. We need to tell a better story of trade benefits to companies and consumers everywhere. It's a great story, one confirmed by history and full of potential for our future. Now I have the great honor of introducing our keynote speaker today. We were recently together in Singapore where I had the opportunity to hear his perspective on China and his warning about the possibility of an economic iron curtain. I'm very glad he's here today to share more of his thoughts. Hank Paulson is a businessman, a China expert, a great conservationist, and a distinguished author. He's also the founder and chairman of the Paulson Institute. Hank Paulson served as our 74th Secretary of the Treasury under President George W. Bush from July 2006 to January 2009, a quiet period, as you know, in American economic history. Prior to that, he had a 32-year career at Goldman Sachs, serving as chairman and chief executive officer beginning in 1999. Earlier in his career, he was a member of the White House Domestic Council as well as a staff assistant at the Pentagon. Today, Hank is chairman of the Paulson Institute, which aims to advance sustainable economic growth, a cleaner environment, and cross-border investments in the United States and China. A think-and-do tank, if you will, founded in 2011, the Paulson Institute's work is comprised of programs, advocacy, and research with partners around the globe. Paulson is co-chair of the Aspen Institute's Economic Strategy Group, along with former White House Chief of Staff Erskine Bowles. The Economic Strategy Group convenes, in a nonpartisan spirit, a diverse range of distinguished leaders, 
and thinkers to address significant structural challenges in the U.S. economy. Hank was chairman of the Nature Conservancy Board of Directors and founded and co-chaired the organization's Asia-Pacific Council. In 2011, he founded the Latin American Conservation Council comprised of global business and political leaders, which he co-chaired until 2017. He also co-chaired the Risky Business Project from 2013 to 2017, a nonpartisan initiative that quantified and publicized the economic risk of climate change in the United States. Paulson describes his experiences as Treasury Secretary fending off the near collapse of the U.S. economy during the Great Recession, which he wrote about in his book, On the Brink, and his vast experience working with scores of China's top political and business leaders and witnessing the evolution of China's state-controlled capitalism is the focus of his new book, Dealing with China. We are lucky indeed that we get to hear directly from him. Please join me in welcoming Secretary Hank Paulson to the stage. First of all, thank you very much, Fred. That's about the longest and nicest introduction I've ever had. And uh, we'll be talking about China today. And I'll tell you, there's first of all, there's no better spokesman anywhere for trade than Fred. I don't think there's anyone that knows China any better than Fred. The Chinese respect strength and candor. And uh, Fred exemplifies both of those things. And so, again, uh, thank you very much, Fred. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, can you all hear me? Is this working? Good. Uh, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning for what I'm certain is going to be an intensive half day of discussions and exchanges. To get things started, let me send you off into your three breakout groups by being as blunt as I know how to be you're gonna face an incredibly big challenge. For one, the trade debate, as Fred has so eloquently said, in this city has changed markedly from just five years ago, much less from when I served as Treasury Secretary. Both sides of the political aisle, leaders and legislators, now question the benefits of trade. Across our political spectrum, from left to right, many argue that America has been taken for a ride. For others, the problem isn't trade, but rather trade agreements. They question the way the trade policies and practices have been conducted in recent decades by administrations of both parties. In fact, politicians on both sides are actually applauding for tariffs, something, quite frankly, I never thought I'd see. America's approaches, policies, and posture toward international trade are in play and trade risk becoming a political football as, as the presumptions that once drove American policy come under question from all sides. Republicans and Democrats swat at the decisions and actions of former administrations of both parties. Meanwhile, out where I live, in the Midwest, in the heartland of America, a lot of people still depend on trade, both exports and imports and that dependence is growing. 
They're crying out for solutions, not political sniping. Above all, they're crying out for access to and more opportunities in foreign markets, because that's where so much future growth is and where opportunities lie. And that's why expansion into foreign markets is essential to their growth strategy. Frankly, some of them are also hurting. So they're starting to wonder if there's a way forward that means opportunity, not hardship. They want leaders who deliver. And so the title of today's event, A Positive Trade Agenda, is both timely and important. Now, it's no surprise that one of your three breakout groups is focused on China, because it's China, after all, that lies at the epicenter of our current trade debates. And people are rightfully focused on US-China trade negotiations. My view is that China can agree to enough of what President Trump seeks to enable a deal that he can be, enable a deal that includes some meaningful structural changes in intellectual property protections, and one that the president can be proud of if it contains compliance and enforcement mechanisms to ensure implementation. That's essential. And that would be a significant win if it includes structural change, market openings, and intellectual property protection. But I also happen to believe that even assuming a successful trade agreement, the underlying tensions will persist and will be particularly intense in technology-related trade and investment. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. Some of you may know that I gave a speech in Singapore last November in which I warned that an economic iron curtain is a very real possibility as a result of a decoupling between the United States and China. Sadly, nothing has happened since November that has changed my view or softened my concerns. That is a function, first, of Chinese choices. Second, it reflects American choices. Third, it is because national security concerns are now bleeding into virtually every aspect of our economic relationship. And fourth, it reflects the reality and intensification of strategic competition between the United States and China. The United States and China have always had a turbulent relationship. And that turbulence, the cyclical ups and downs in US-China relations, has never gone away. But I believe now something of deeper significance is happening. We are moving beyond cyclical ups and downs. A variety of structural factors and serious policy and strategic disagreements have fueled the emerging consensus that China is not just a strategic competitor, but very possibly our major long-term adversary. Nobody is arguing against dialogue, but nearly everybody in the United States is arguing that the results of dialogues have been poor. In large part, because China has been slow to open its economy since joining the WTO, the American business community has turned from advocate to skeptic and even opponent of past US policies toward China. American businesses don't want a tariff war, but American business does want a more confrontational approach 
from our government. And against that backdrop, we must look warily at the prospect of what until now has been a healthy strategic competition could lead in directions that tip into full-blown Cold War. I spoke at length at Singapore about how we arrived at such a moment of heightened tensions with a big emphasis on China's policies, practices, and behavior. So today, I want to lay out what I view as the biggest risks, especially to the United States. And I'll make a few modest suggestions as how to begin the long process of setting U.S.-China relations into a, onto a more sustainable footing. First, the risks of an, iron, of an economic iron curtain are considerable. And while many Americans like to talk about the risk to China, we need to face up to the fact that some of the policies now under debate in this city pose considerable risks for the United States also. Here's the nub of it. The U.S.-China relationship has been characterized by the integration of four things, goods, capital, technology, and people. In over 40 years, economic integration between the two countries was supposed to mitigate security competition. But an intellectually honest appraisal must now admit both that this hasn't happened and that the reverse is taking place. And technology is a critical driver of this change. In today's world, technology is an integral part of business success, blurring the lines between economic competitiveness and national security. The result is, after 40 years of integration, a surprising number of political and thought leaders on both sides advocate policies that could forcibly deintegrate two countries across all four baskets. The integration of trade and goods could come undone as supply chains are forcibly broken, especially for those that use sensitive technology. Integration through cross-border capital flows will come under ever greater pressure as restrictions on Chinese investment take hold across big sectors in the United States. The integration of people, especially the brightest young students, could also stall as Washington potentially bans Chinese students from studying for multi-year PhD or postdoctoral programs and whole categories of science and engineering subjects. But most important of all, if this trend continues, we need to consider the possibility that the integration of global innovation ecosystems will collapse as a result of mutual efforts by the United States and China to exclude one another. Some in the United States now advocate a Cold War-style technology denial regime. And this is partly because of a growing consensus that China has been using policies and strategies that foster the indigenous development of, uh, uh, the indigenous development of technology and what they're setting to do is to set their own standards and ultimately pursue self-reliance. Pervasive technology theft, forced technology transfer, including within joint ventures and different models of internet governance, 
and cross-border data flows are also contributing factors. Yet innovation and technology cannot be separated from business competitiveness. So such a balkanization of technology could further harm global innovation, not to mention the competitiveness of American firms around the world. But more than that, I'm convinced that this has the potential to harm the United States in ways too, too few people in Washington seem to take seriously. They're focused on ways to hurt China and attenuate its technological progress in advanced and emerging industries. But they're less focused, they should be, on what that effort might mean for America's own technological process, progress and economic competitiveness. If this persists across all four baskets of goods, capital, uh, and people, and technology, I fear that big parts of the global economy will ultimately be closed off to the free flow of investment and trade. And that is why I see more clearly than ever the prospect of an economic iron curtain, one that throws up new walls on each side and unmakes the global economy as we have known it. That is what concerned me in November, and it remains my concern today. Now, the good news is that many of the changes that have been or are being made to America's investment screening mechanisms and export control procedures were vastly overdue and therefore are quite appropriate. Let's just take investment. I helped lead the 2000 effort to reform our national security investment review process, or in Washington acronym speak, CFIUS, because I felt strongly that it, was, that it needed to be updated to reflect new challenges. And since I never thought the CFIUS process should be static, it won't surprise you to know that I also welcome the more recent updates to FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Risk and Review Act, and, excuse me, the Foreign Investment Risk Review and Modernization Act. That's a big mouthful. Okay, and, and I see those changes as necessary. One that was over, and one thing that was overdue was to subject critical infrastructure and sensitive data, not merely controlling uh, ownership stakes in companies to a process of review, screening, mitigation, and occasional rejection. And that is why, generally speaking, I also welcome elements of a wisely implemented ECRA, the Export Control Reform Act, which is a necessity to update our export controls. Uh, and so again, this is very much overdue. Every business and innovation leader that I talk to welcomes closer government industry collaboration to do just that. Every one of them hopes it will lead to robust, strong, and enduring American leadership. But these businesses and innovation leaders worry too. They worry about the vast scope of restrictions. They're worried that we will fail to define emerging and functional technologies with care. They worry that government bureaucrats 
who do not fully grasp all of the dimensions and applications of the technologies at stake will administer controls with a blunt hammer without fully considering all the consequences of their actions and the collective impact on our nation. They worry that ultimately we risk walling off whole classes of knowledge, technology, and innovation. And they worry that this, in fact, will backfire, undermining American innovation leadership while China and others continue to jointly innovate with one another. So while, of course, we need to handle components that are made in China with particular care, and, we, and while we need to be eternally vigilant on national security grounds, we also need business and government to work together with wisdom and care. The problem with applying a blunt hammer is it can end up breaking everything. If you aim to hurt others, but end up hurting yourself, you cannot always recover for a second chance. In one potential scenario, or in the extreme case, we could end up sequestering so much important technology in the United States that American companies no longer participate in international supply chains for the fastest growing industries. What would that mean for us? For one, America would abdicate a role in setting global standards in key industries. For another, the U.S. innovation engine would lose its place in the, as the world's most attractive investment destination. And that is because my friend and former Bush administration colleague, Dan Price of Rock Creek Global uh, Advisors says that in Silicon Valley, the, the, uh, the ultimate prize is the next unicorn. And that unicorn won't be nearly as attractive as if it could only gaze, graze in the United States of America. Now, as a practical matter, rather than as an aspirational one, China still relies on a lot of global capital, trade, investment, and, and foreign know-how. And so the most strident calls for decoupling are actually coming from the United States and to a lesser extent from Europe, not from China. Although China, it is true, is now taking urgent steps to try to indigenize its supply chain something that some in that country have always urged. But here's the problem for our country, for those who advocate a U.S.-China divorce. Decoupling is easier when you're actually a couple. But the United States and China are not, in fact, a couple. There are more than two players here, and the rest of the world gets a vote. For instance, I do not believe that any country in Asia can afford to divorce China or even wishes to. And that may explain why the United States is getting more traction with its confrontational approach in G7 economies of Europe and Japan than in the G77 economies of developing Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. Like the United States, some other advanced industrial democracies may now seek to strip Chinese equipment out of backbone technology systems. But most of all, but most, I would say this, if not all, developing countries will not. And the signs from some of America's closest partners, including Britain, Germany, and Israel, are at best ambiguous. And so in its efforts to isolate China, the United States risks isolating itself. 
frankly, deintegration is inevitable and even necessary in some areas to protect our national security. But it is decidedly not in America's interest to attempt this across the board. Divorce won't work well for global businesses. And the same can be said for trade policies that drive companies and countries away. So instead of pursuing a carefully calibrated de-integration focused on sensitive and critical areas, the US it seems instead to be flirting with a comprehensive de-integration. And although initiatives like technology policies that are designed to isolate China from the supply chain, excuse me, and through initiatives like technology policies that are designed to isolate China from the supply chain, Washington risks, as I said, sequestering technology in the United States by isolating itself from global supply chains in the fastest growing economies. And Washington is at risk of more battles with its allies and partners, the very partners it needs to help alter China's behavior. Now, of course, if China wants to keep its relationships with the United States from spinning out of control, it is going to have to look hard at some of its choices and policies. And so I continue to encourage Chinese leaders to pursue reforms in three baskets in particular. First is competition reforms. Foreign firms need to be allowed to compete with Chinese firms on a level playing field. The second area involves the role of the market. China will always have a large state-owned sector, of course. But China should strengthen those pillars that permit firms, even the state-owned firms, to be run commercially. That means strengthening corporate boards, not Communist Party committees, as the tools of external supervision. Third, China must foster and protect innovation. Policies of forced technology transfer should end. China should work to prevent cyber theft and better protect intellectual property. And a mandate for indigenous innovation should not be used to limit competition, including the use of unfair standards. If China doesn't move very quickly, I suspect the calls for divorce will intensify. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't believe the current trajectory can be easily reversed. Carla Hills told me she wanted to hear some good news. I, I guess I don't have good news on that front. To alter the downward spiral, thoughtful people need to make tough decisions. To get things started, I offer, as I have before, some simple prescriptions for American policymakers. First, dial down the rhetoric. Strategic competition is a fact. We have compelling differences of national interest between our two countries, and we should be prepared for the obvious strategic challenges from China. But in doing so, let's not sacrifice those values or the commitments to openness that made us the strongest, most competitive, and admired country in the world. Second, enlist partners. And then working in coalition with these partners, try to foster some workable understandings with Beijing. To be blunt about this, I wish President Trump would reconsider his uh, decision to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. A TPP 2.0 would offer a ready-made vehicle to shape the trade environment in which Beijing operates. Third, negotiate with China in a tough-minded way. That means finding frameworks not just to discuss issues, but resolve them, okay? And then to ensure compliance as the Trump administration is working to do. 
and resolving them almost certainly means working in closer coordination with like-minded partners. Fourth, in an under any scenario, invest in America big time. A strong military, a strong economy, strong educational institutions, strong investments in science and engineering, openness to the world, investment in alliances, investment in security and economic partnerships on every continent, but especially in Asia and in Europe. These things are essential if the United States is to compete and thrive in the world of the 21st century. There is simply no substitute for getting our own policies right. Today's world looks nothing like the world of the 1970s or even of the 2000s. New technologies, new economic challenges, new geopolitical challenges, all of these have eroded the frameworks of the past. And so we've reached another, another of these consequential moments. And the stakes for our economies and for the world are higher than ever before. We need to craft a new framework that works for today's world, not the world of the past. And for that, we will need statesmanship, wise and strong leadership in Washington and Beijing, and I think some good ideas from all of you today. So uh, thank you all for listening to me. So thank you very much for some great framing remarks and some excellent uh, recommendations that will get us off to a good start. We have a few minutes for uh, a conversation up here before we break, and so I'm going to take advantage of, of the extra time and ask the Secretary to respond to a, a couple questions. Uh, a lot of what you said focused on the bilateral relationship. You are well known as someone who has spent a lot of time in China, studying China, uh, knowing Chinese. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on over there? Uh, what economic challenges are they facing? Are they taking the right steps to address them? Is there a chance for real economic reform over there? Well, Bill, uh, thank you. There's a lot in that question to, to uh, unpack. Uh, first of all, as I think most of you know, their economy is slowing down. It's been slowing down for some time. Uh, and as I think Fred had mentioned in his remarks, the components of growth have changed. You know, over the last couple of years, uh, only about 10% of China's growth, less than 10%, has come from exports, and almost 60% from consumption and you know, 40% from, from investment. Um, and very recently, the economy, you know, it, it, the official growth rate was, the official growth rate was 6.6% uh, last year, but, uh, but I'd be surprised if it actually was that high. And, uh, you know, people are, are, are expecting there might be something like six to, uh, uh, six and a half percent growth rate this year. But anybody who's been to China recently and visited them all sees that there's no one there. I mean, it is really, consumption is really slow, and I think a big part of that has been what's happening to the house, housing sector. And that's where a lot of the spending is going on, Younger, young people paying a lot to, to, to buy expensive homes and then to, 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 to decorate them and so. So that's, 
uh, th th that slowed down quite uh, significantly. Part of the slowdown is no doubt related to the tariffs, but I don't think that's the biggest part. And uh, th there is also uh, an inhibiting factor is this massive buildup build of debt at the subnational level. And these tens of thousands of state-owned enterprises there that are really just borrowing arms of the, uh, of the local government. And because that poses a real risk, the Chinese, I think, wisely have been slow to use um, monetary stimulus and other, uh, other forms because they've been concerned about the leverage. So growth has slowed down. Now, in terms of reform, if you look at it in the domestic context from the Chinese perspective, you know, Xi Jinping is just, you know, is reformed virtually, look to reform every aspect of, of China from the, you know, the, the Chinese society, social, uh, uh, political, uh, military, economic, uh, etc. And there's been some real success, I mean, in, in terms of air quality. They've achieved much more success than people would have expected very quickly, and in terms of anti-corruption. But in terms of the economy, you know, when he came in, he said, I, the, the markets are going to be decisive when it comes to allocating economic resources. And that isn't what's happened. Uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing a massive misallocation of capital, which is hampering the economy. It, because most of the jobs, growth, taxes, innovation is coming from the private sector, and a disproportionate part of, the, of bank financing, subsidies, government support is going to, the, to, to these, uh, this very ineffective state-owned sector. And so th this economy's got real, real challenges. They haven't invented a better form of capitalism. But I say to but I, I do think the safe assumption is that, that, that in the foreseeable future, China will be the biggest economy in the world and will still be growing uh, a lot faster than we will in this country and, in, and other, you know, and the advanced industrial companies. Now, in terms of, of reform, as we'd like to see opening up, uh, it's, been, it's been very disappointing. You know, it's just, it's, it's frustrating that uh, almost 20 years after China entered the WTO, that the vast parts of the economy, that there's still ownership limits and joint venture requirements, and uh, that I talked in my remarks about, uh, about technology, because I think this is largely about technology, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, so there's big concerns about intellectual property protection, cyber theft, uh, forced technology transfer, directly or indirectly. If, if you have to work with someone, a U.S. company's got to work with someone as a JV partner, how do you do that and have them not have your technology or, or, or your business practices? So that's been a major problem. I am, um, as I said, cautiously optimistic that uh, the Trump administration will get some significant structural changes. I don't think China is going to uh, is going to change, you know, their their state capitalism. They're not going to change the, the overall the way they do business. I think structural changes would make a big difference. And the last thing I would say there is for all those that are rooting for China to fail, 
you know, be careful what you root for. And, and on top of that, the structural changes that President Trump is trying to get are the, the real reformers in China would love to see those structural changes take place. And I, I think that would make China a more competitive economy and a stronger economy and, and help them grow faster. Well, you open uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, uh, opens up another door that I wanted to ask you about, which was the WTO. One of the debates making the rounds here in Washington is that we all got it wrong back then, uh, in 2000, 2001, that we should have uh, objected to them joining the WTO and that we basically have been conned. Uh, is that right? Do you think we were wrong back then and we just are now suffering from our mistakes? I, you know, I, I think, we, well, first of all, there's a lot of litigation, uh, you know, going back of, of history, and uh, and I, I go back, you know, last night at at dinner, Fred Smith made a remark and, and and said, well, you know, if we hadn't China hadn't opened up, how would you like Kim Jong Un running China? You know, you go back with Kissinger and and, uh, and Nixon. And at, at, that, at the time of Mao, he was fighting a proxy war against the U.S. in Vietnam and, uh, you know, sowing seeds of revolution from Bolivia to you know, Borneo. I mean, it was so I think the opening up and, and I believe when you look at, at WTO, it made sense at, at the time. And what we've seen happen is we've seen, you know, U.S. exports to China grow by 500 percent, services by 900 percent. And, and so on, but but the, uh, the the problem is that the WTO needs to be updated. It, it is like so many of our global institutions; it hasn't kept up with the global economy. No one foresaw a a, a company the, the size of China, uh, uh, with the success that China has. And with all of the barriers they have, you know, the protectionist tool of choice today, at least until more recently, wasn't tariffs. You know, it was all the non-tariff barriers, the standards, the licensing, the regulatory barriers, all the things that the TPP tried to deal with. So I think that I, I, I look at what's happened, and uh, you know, China has been a big driver of global economic growth, and there's been a lot of benefits, hundreds of millions of people coming out of poverty. But what we need to do is we need to fix the system. It's not working. The, the WTO needs to be updated. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because that is precisely the topic of one of the, the breakout sessions coming up. This was not arranged in advance, by yeah. the way. But uh, you've really opened the door to the discussion I hope we have, which is going to be uh, about reform, but also whether the institutions that we've got really are equipped to deal with a problem the size of China. Well, there's, there's, there's very few. Let, let me just say this. There's, when you look at, at the rapid change we've had in the world, driven by technology and AI, which, as Fred has said, is displacing so many uh, jobs all around the world, not just in, in the U.S., all the major advanced industrial companies, even in China. You go through plants on the coastal China, you see robotics rather than, 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 than a lot of workers. When you look at those challenges, you look at all the cyber challenges, you know, we, we need new rules. And if China didn't exist, we would still have a, a difficult issue with our allies coming up with, 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 with a, a global governance structure. And I look at it, I never, 
you know, the, the, you know there's a lot of re revisionist history today. Uh, you know, I, I never ever believed that, uh, that, that China was going to espouse a Western liberal order, right? Or that they wanted to be a Jeffersonian democracy or that the Communist Party wouldn't be predominant in China. But China has the same interest we do and in th they need a global order. We're going to need principles to to, uh, to to govern by to, if we're to avoid chaos, and so and I so I really do think there's a there's an urgent need for us to you know, and we want the principles that we have espoused and which has benefited China and the whole world to be to continue to to. Uh, to be predominant, and, and if, if that's the case, we, we've got a lot of work to do. One of the things that you mentioned in your remarks, but we, we can spend a little bit more time on in the remaining couple minutes, uh, is investment. And you talked a little bit about Firma and, and ECRO, but say, tell us a little bit about uh, the importance of investment in the trading system, both inbound and outbound. Uh, how important is it economically compared to uh, trade in goods and services. How do you see the current investment environment in the United States? Is it welcoming uh, or not? Should it be more welcoming? Again, a, a very big topic. And it's one I have a really strong view on. I think that investment that creates jobs and good paying jobs is going to be increasingly difficult to come by, increasingly important, it's going to be very competitive. Uh, and we see it even in the United States, within the United States, right? Just look at, you know, the spectacle that we've seen with Amazon, you know? And, and, and so uh, we have real competition among states and the community for, for, to attract investment. And when you look at foreign direct investment, I think it's the highest compliment that anyone can pay, you know, the United States of America if they make a, a, a long-term investment here. You buy U.S. Treasuries, you can sell them tomorrow, right? Trade, you know, trade flows can, can change. A, a, you look at enduring economic linkages and commitment, that's... That, that, that comes from, uh, from, from foreign investment. And um, it, it's very competitive. When you, you say, you know, what makes any country an attractive source, or not a source, an attractive destination for foreign investment? There's a lot of things. There's the size of the market, uh, you know, the quality of the labor force, their, their technical capabilities. Um, you know, infrastructure, uh, the regulatory regime, taxes, but and all of those things have worked in our favor, but the biggest draw to, to the United States was our openness, our respect for property rights, our respect for the rule of law, stable, consistent, well-founded macroeconomic policies. That, that's why people wanted to, to, to come to the United States. And, and to me, when we, when we do things that, that close that off or make people 
question whether we welcome foreign investment or when we do things that are unpredictable, uh, what we do is we make this less attractive. The same for, for U.S. companies. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. The, uh, that, you know, hopefully the tariffs will be very successful in bringing China to the table and getting an agreement. But there's a cost to these things. And the, there's a short-term cost, and, and a short-term cost we all, we all know what, what, what a tax like that does, and consumers pay the cost in the United States. The long-term cost is will U.S. companies continue to be attractive partners in someone's supply chain if they believe the U.S. can come in and break that apart at any time? And so, again, when we, we need to think of long-term competitiveness, and I think investment is, uh, is uh, critically important. Along that last, last, last point, and this is uh, probably the last question, uh, can you say a few words about outbound investment? Because this, this administration in particular has suggested that what they really want American companies to do is stay here and invest here and not go over there and not build supply chains over there. I've got a, a, a real strong bias here, and I, I think it's, it's grounded in facts. And I've always taken it as a, as a certainty, as something that people understood and I'm recognizing the case has to be made, and it has to be made better. I think that one of the huge advantages we have is in the United States is having global companies, multinational companies that are headquartered here and doing business and successful all around the world, that have got the scale and are successful all around the world. And that benefits the United States in many ways, because those firms are going to be the best innovators, they're going to be technological leaders, they're going to be the most competitive, uh, but it's going to benefit in terms of what, what the record shows is that our multinational companies, they're the best employers in terms of the, you know, the, the, the salaries they pay, you know, the good paying jobs. They're the, they're, they're the best if you've got strong presence overseas that's also a, a great vehicle for exports and so multinational companies are big contributors in terms of exports uh, that so but but I think we need to do a, be, a better job in, in helping the, the country understand I don't think we want to look back and, and become you know it, it, when, when China is the biggest economy in the world I don't think we want to be back look back and be the UK, right? We, we, we want to continue to have our co uh, companies be leaders all around, all, all around the world. And that, I think, answers Carla's question of, is there any good news? And, and there is. There's things that we can do. Um, I'm going to give you instructions. But first, one more time, can we thank Secretary Paulson for his comments? Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, we're going to have a coffee break and you need to go and have a coffee break because we're going to bring down the walls, rearrange the furniture. Uh, when we bring you back, which will be when the walls are down, please come back and the tables will be squished a little bit. If you are in the three zeros group, your breakout session is over there. If you are in the reforming multilateral institutions group, you are here in the center. 
If you're in the China group, you are over there where the windows are. So when you come back, once the walls have come down, please go to the group you signed up for, uh, meet your discussion leaders, Scott Kennedy there, and uh, Matt Goodman here, and Scott Miller over there, and meet the discussion leaders who are identified in, in uh, the program you have. And now it's your turn to go to work. When you're done at 11.45, your leaders will send you back out for lunch, get lunch, and then once the walls are back up, bring it back in here and uh, join us again at the tables for the wrap-up. So that's the instructions. Go to it.